This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Ingrid Heilke. Ingrid, thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So share with our listening audience a little bit of, of your background. So I, I currently live in Rhode Island, uh, which is, it, my business is, I do business across the U.S. My, my business is Butterfly Revolution. I help uh, companies uh, increase the profitability and financial health of their business, help them understand their numbers and make better data-backed decisions. Um, and that's the, that's the top line summary. Top line. And now you can dig, up and, dig in a little talked bit more. earlier offline. You, you didn't, you didn't start your life in Rhode Island. Where, where was the early days? Uh, I started in California and I moved out here for, for grad school. And uh, I went to school at MIT for urban planning. Yeah, I noticed that. I, I, um, and we've had some great guests, and, and I'm going to add you to the long line of classic underachievers that went to that little school in Massachusetts <laughs> that nobody's ever heard of. So that, that's pretty impressive. That uh, you know, anybody that graduates from a school that that rhymes with MIT, I'm I'm pretty impressed by. So. Thank you. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about just, just kind of the transition story. I mean, take us back to, you know, college and grad school and then, you know, give us this kind of the short runway from there to maybe today. You know, I support businesses in, in profitability, but I have a complicated relationship with profit myself. I no longer have a complicated relationship with profit, <laughs> but I have. And I studied environmental studies in anthropology in college and that's one does going into business right <laughs> well my intention wasn't to go into business and in those sectors profit is a dirty word and profit mm -hmm. is a dirty word because companies do things like dump raw sewage into rivers or toxins into rivers or make kids work in factories and so there's this whole ideology around profit being bad and so that's what my naive mind grew up with as, uh, okay, profit is this thing that you don't do. And then I, I graduate, I open up the newspaper and I, because we had those back then when you look for a job, you know, they, they have these little kids. Those were paper with print on them. Right. <laughs> one on your iPhone. Print, it's a little job description and they give me the job and it's a bookkeeper in a restaurant. And it's just crazy how these, these little moments in life really define the rest of your trajectory. Mm. So I get a, a job as a bookkeeper in a restaurant and things snowball. I end up working for an investment firm and I end up supporting businesses across San Francisco as a freelancer, setting up their QuickBooks, mostly early stage businesses, setting up their financial systems, tying it to their operations. But at that time, I was restless because I really wanted to save the world. <laughs> <laughs> and I really didn't connect the dots between the fact that money is really the metabolism that we're, that, that we're built on. And I, I still had this idea in the back of my head that the profit is evil. Mm. Um, but when you think about it, money is just, it, it's just basically, it's like the blood that runs through our body, right? It's just, sure. it, all it is is currency. So I got restless. I went and I got a fancy degree from MIT and I came out the other side and I worked for the Environmental Protection Agency and as a decision scientist and I was supporting mm -hmm. cities and towns across the country in making better decisions. For environmental for, purposes. Yeah, for environmental and human health outcomes okay. like 
helping them not dump raw sewage sure. into yeah. the water where people swim. And you think that, of course, cities and towns don't want to dump sewage in i mean that they don't they don't want to dump sewage <laughs> in the water but they don't they can't they don't always have the capacity or the ability to make the best decisions right. that they want to do and it's funny because there's a lot of similarities between small cities and towns and small businesses mm. for example we look to what the next town over is doing or what the next city over is doing uh, which is not always the most appropriate way to make a decision. You know, Plainsville, Indiana, looking to New York City to try to, to try to solve their problems is not necessarily the most appropriate decision. In the same way that a startup looking to Apple is not going to make the best decisions. Exactly. Right? What exactly. Apple is doing is not appropriate for what a startup is doing. So... I worked for the EPA for upward almost seven years, and then, uh, and then there was a, a little election that happened, and uh, <laughs> and I changed course. I'm not going to get into that. But. <laughs> a little election, yeah. <laughs> and I I went back to my financial roots, and I really took stock of what I had done, and. You know, during the time that I was working for EPA, I looked at a lot of data. I looked at environmental data, social data, economic data. And what stood out to me is that the most important data, the data that, or the, the information, the, the thing that drives human behavior is economic, is financial. Sure. Because it's tied to so many other things. Right, right. And, you know, everybody listening is, is like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> of course it does. Uh, but me coming, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed, I, I ignored that fact, even though I was looking at, I was looking into my clients, uh, books. I was looking, it was right in front of me. It was the data that I was working with all along with small businesses. Uh, but I ignored it because I had these lofty ideas about saving the world, but coming out of federal government, coming out of this huge agency that was making these huge potential changes, what I realized was that I didn't need to be in a big agency to make big changes. And mm -hmm. I thought about it and I thought about the big changes that I see in the world. And what I realized is that big changes happen cumulatively. Right. Exactly. And you think about the big changes that we see, and I'll just give you a few examples. You know, we look at Susan B. Anthony, she was a leader in the women's suffrage movement. Mm -hmm. We look at Martin Luther King, a leader in, in civil rights. We even look at Jimmy Wales, started Wikipedia. We all know what Wikipedia is. And they did make big change. But the change that they made would not have been at all possible if it wasn't for thousands of people taking millions of actions. Right. And I say this because I think that it's really important. I know that your audience is startups. And I think that it's really easy to get caught up in the idea that you need to do the big thing that's going to change the world. And you need to be the face of it. You need to be the one big thing. And it's really easy to get our egos tied up in that. But what I think is that what is really important is that we're all contributing to that big change cumulatively. 
Oh, I, if I can just step in for just a second here, because you, you really triggered something in my mind and something that I, like, I, I have this kind of strange habit of walking my dog twice a day and, and that's my think time. So I, I try to walk him early in the morning and walk him in, in you know, at night. And this, uh, the thing that was running through my mind this week was, was a, a blog article that's kind of, you know, formulating itself within my, my psyche that, that is like really called a bridge too far or something like that. So the, the whole premise behind this is that we tend to look at the Seth Godin's or the Gary V's or Steve Jobs or whoever that, that individual is. And you mentioned, you know, a small business looking to Apple or, or Plainsville, Indiana looking to, to New York City. That is exactly the premise that, that is, has gone through my mind this week about that, that gap is too great. And that there's there's too few things that are that are um, you know connected, and instead of looking to that that far city or that far celebrity or whatever it is, who's the person that's close to you that is ahead of you on that process mm-hmm. that you can learn from? What, who's what's the next city that's a little ahead of Plainsville, Indiana? You know, what's oh. the company that's a little ahead of you? you know, in the process and how can you, because that's a much closer bridge. Yes. And, I mean, I like the, just the whole way you kind of laid that out. I don't want to put words in your mouth. That I mean, that was just kind of was going through my mind as you were, as you were kind of outlining this, this, you know, whole, you know, who are you looking to, to guide you, to help you in, along this process? So. Yeah. And I think that that's a great idea of, of looking at what's close to you because that's where you can make change. And none of those leaders started out knowing where they were going to get to. I mean, Martin Luther King, his first, you know, parish was 18 people. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it wasn't, the whole country wasn't following him immediately. Right. Right. And if you think that the goal is to be a great leader, you know, leading a country or leading a huge movement, you're always going to be disappointed in yourself. But if you look at what can you do tomorrow, what can you do next week, and always build on top of that, and you're always tracking with integrity and always tracking with what can I do to make positive change in the world, and knowing that what you did today is better than what you did yesterday, mm-hmm. you are making that positive impact. And <laughs> for one thing, you're going to make a positive impact. And also you're going to be just a happier person. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, no question. No. And as you, so as you transitioned out of, from the EPA into what, you know, most of us may call that like the social entrepreneurial space. I mean, it's kind of that perfect collision of social responsibility and entrepreneurship. And that's exactly what, I mean, as I was reading, you know, through your website and, and reading your bio, that's exactly the, the space you've kind of landed in and you, you needed to land in because of that's how you're wired. So, so take us to kind of, let's dive a little deeper in that kind of the granular, you know, what are you doing today? What exactly does Butterfly Revolution represent? You know, it's, it's funny, Kevin, because within the last few months, I had a crisis of consciousness, I think, because, uh, and this is, and I know that we're going to talk a little bit about, we're, we're going to get into some of these, these lessons later. And so I, I think that this is a good illustration of this. So I'll, I'll tell you the story of, of how this has happened for me over the last few months. 
So uh, I was basically running two businesses in one um, where I was really trying to work with purpose-driven entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and in building that up with a vision of eventually uh, building a sister organization uh, to support nonprofits, mm-hmm. uh, small and community nonprofits. And I got to this point where I realized it. And at the same time, I kind of accidentally fell into last year, I fell into working with bridal stores and they are in a tough position. And I've been working with collaborative partners with them. Uh, like a lot of businesses, they're um, struggling with the competitive online space or struggling with other uh, large chain retailers um, and really in a period of contraction. And it's an interesting challenge for me because uh, uh, in terms of shepherding them through how to uh, make their businesses either keep their businesses profitable or make them profitable. Right. Um, and also dealing with the shifting landscape of a shifting marketplace, uh, shifting industry. So that has been an interesting challenge. And I came to a point where I I had to look at my own business and had to look at the amount of energy that I was putting in and and the fact that I was working, essentially running two businesses in one. Mm -hmm. One of them was paying me six figures. And the other one was essentially volunteer because I hadn't developed out the market yet, even though that was a possibility. Mm -hmm. And so I had to let go and I had to let go of... 20 years of idealism. And that was a really hard decision for me to make, but it was also a decision that was important for sustaining myself financially. Um, And then also looking at the long-term for me in terms of, hey, I am able to help this industry and I can also learn as I help this industry in terms of uh, then going on and using these lessons and continuing to help other small businesses. Mm -hmm. So that was an important lesson for me. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but I think that it's always important to reassess uh, as a business owner, reassess what your initial assumptions are and be able to, to basically tack and pivot as you need to in order to, uh, survive and whether that has to do with financial survival or just being able to, you know, just being able to maintain your own, protect your own time and, and not work a hundred hours a week Absolutely. Um, for, you know, to, to, to build, a, even if it's building a company that's, that is going to take two years and you know, you're not going to get paid mm-hmm. <laughs> in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can live off the fruits of the of the previous you know life that you were living through your, through a, maybe a broader audience. But so tomorrow morning you wake up. Who is your niche audience? Oh well, my niche right now is bridal stores, and I do work with other clients that come to me. Um, but right now, but if you look at my website, it's right. it's bridal stores. Yeah, your yes. target avatar, or whatever. So yep. You is are you primarily brick and mortar or would these be online? Oh yeah, brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's interesting. I mean, we have a a bridal shop that was just you know looked like it was just going great guns, and it literally mm-hmm. closed within yes. the last six months. And I'm thinking, so what what is the biggest competition? What what is I mean, is this kind of the Amazon phenomenon? The the online space? Is it rentals? Is it? There's three sources of competition. Uh huh. Um, and I would say. 
there's two real sources of competition. <clears throat> so the two biggest sources of competition are uh, online, but also other retailers. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of retailers that are moving into the space that are more casual. Uh, so anthropology, uh, the department stores, right? Nordstrom's Macy's. <laughs> yeah. So actually the other retailers are a bigger source of competition than online. Uh, a lot of bridal stores perceive online as perhaps like a bigger source of competition. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the type of people that are actually going to come in and have the experience of shopping online, <clears throat> it's more, um, the bigger sources of competition are, are actually other retailers. Right. Right. Now that, that makes sense because I mean, it, it is such a, a, an individual decision. It's not like I'm ordering a t-shirt. I mean, you, you have to put it on, you have to have your friends there saying this is, that's it. That's not it. You know, I love this, that type of thing. So, I mean, it really is an experience. I mean, I've only been through it thankfully one time and seen it, you know, 35 years ago, but um, it, it is a, just a unique shopping experience. I mean, yeah. buy that, that bridal gown. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, the industry is going through a period of contraction uh, because of the retailers and the online competition. And in any period of contraction, in any period of disruption, there are winners and losers. Sure. You know, there are people that are going to drop out. So there's some markets that are very oversaturated. This mm -hmm. isn't true everywhere. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be there's going to be businesses that go under. The businesses that go under are the ones that are not prepared, that are not adapting. The other thing that's happening in the space is that the customers are changing. Their behaviors are changing. Mm. So if store owners are not aware of changing behavior, if they're not marketing to that changing behavior, if they're not responding to the new customers, the new brides that are coming in and what they want, and they're not selling in, in, in a way that caters to that, um, in the way that people use social media, in the way right. that people are buying, which is in the experience that they're looking for, mm -hmm. um, in defining their specific avatar that they're selling to, their sales are going to go continually down. The clients that I'm working with, um, because we're continually working on this, they're seeing their sales go up. So, you know, there's winners and there's losers. Right. Yeah, unfortunately. Right. Um, but that, that, it, that, that's normal in any period of contraction. Sure. There's a lot of fear in the industry because people see these trends and they, they say that it's that the retail space is that I don't think that's true. I think that this is an industry where people are, there's always people in the market that are going to be looking for that experience, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this right. is a very unique type oh, yeah, of sure. experience. Like there's always people that are never just going to buy their bridal gowns online, right? right. right? <laughs> or they're never going to go in and just buy a, a, a dress from anthropology. Right. You know, there is always that segment of the market that's going to look for that. It's just trying to understand your customer and understand exactly what they need and speak exactly to what they need and what they're looking for. So, I mean, it, as, as I'm looking through your website and, and this is, you know, was a quick glance through your bio and through some of the service you're providing. So yours is, it's a broader service pro provider than or broader, ser broader service that you're providing than simply uh, like financial support and financial. And I mean, it, it's, it sounds like it's the full service thing that's that you can walk them through social media. You can walk them through just general marketing, possibly even how to rebrand. I mean, what are some of the other things that you might touch on that, 
or how broad do you, do you go with these with these stores? So I actually I don't necessarily I don't go in and do somebody's marketing or mm-hmm. I don't go in and do their branding. Mm-hmm. You know, they might work with other people to do that, but I do work with people on on business management. I mean, money touches right. a lot of different places. Right. Right. So you know, if we're talking about profitability, we're talking about increasing your margins, there's different ways to increase your margins. You know, you can't even start to increase sales if you have not defined your avatar. Mm. So I have an example of a a store that she's uh, one of my members. And um, in, in my lessons, I kind of walk through uh, you know, defining your why. And it's like, I don't go deep on the marketing, but I touch on some very broad points. And then we have conversations about that. I have masterminds. People can kind of see what other people are doing. And so there's a lot of aha moment, moments right. in that. And people kind of, for some people, this is the first time they have even been introduced to these concepts. And so, so one of my members recently, like she was lost. She hated her customers because she was working with the wrong customers Mm. and just a light bulb went off for her when she, it took her a couple months to start working through this. Mm -hmm. You know, she was, she was writing, she was, she had to really get in touch with who she was and who she started working with, but who she wanted to work with. But she realized, you know, she, one of the first things that she said was like, I don't want to sell these, I'm not about pretty dresses. I, that's not what I'm about. That was one of the first things. Mm-hmm. And it, then it took her a long time to get to what she was. Right. You know, and some of the things that came up for her was like independent thinking because a lot of people come in with their mothers and a lot of people that come in and that wasn't for her. That's for some other people. It wasn't for her. She got to the point where she realized that she wanted to be selling to people that are very independent, making their own decisions. Like she has, she's now uh, has relation developing relationships with designers that are bringing suits into her store. Very unconventional. So um, she, it, but she, at first she was trying to follow a very conventional model, um, and since she started doing this, people have people have been attracted to her store because she changed how she was. uh, She changed the photos on her website. She changed the messaging on her website. Um, I referred to her two books. I didn't walk her through the marketing process. I just gave her the resources, but um, Simon Sinek start with why these are, I mean, these are so popular and I'm sure you've had, (laughs) I'm sure you've referred them out, but Simon Sinek start with why. And then, um, and then story brand. Donald Miller. Right. And she actually went through the story brand, put in uh, the, started doing the exercises and like Mm -hmm. writing the messaging and. um, Found out who the hero of the story was. What's that? Find out, found out who the hero of the story was. Right. Um, And then things started to click. But the thing is then I, but she, so she has defined three avatars for her store, Mm -hmm. but then, then we can actually take those in and I do the finance piece. Right. So right. once they define their avatars, we can actually go in and start assigning avatars to products and start sure. analyzing the numbers. So right. of your past sales, you know, how, what is the breakdown in terms of who you're selling to? What are your top sellers? And then uh, 
are you really selling to your avatar? And now let's, now let's do some inventory management around that. Right. But I mean, you had to, you had to walk her through the process to get to kind of the end product there. The, I mean, the get to where you, the information that you were really drilling down into, you had to put some pieces in place to even get there. So um, that is, a, it's, I mean, it's a process. It's not, it's not marketing and branding per se, but it certainly is the whole process. And I like the way you phrased that of more the business management process, you know, just mm-hmm. the whole, the whole kind of pie together, but yeah, gonna, it's I'm all, gonna... it's all connected. And, you know, I have a couple collaborative partners that I work with. One of them is very connected with the sales. She's been running a store for 14 years. So, you know, I can kind of look at the high level concepts of sales. She really digs into, these are the words that you use. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I have another collaborative partner that deals with the tech so I can deal with the high level um, tech things, Google Analytics, et cetera, mm. but she can actually go in and do a blueprint mm. of your, uh, of, of what is your Google Analytics, what's your SEO, what are you, right. what does it look like now and what could it look like if it's right. optimized? Right. So, you know, we kind of stay in our lanes, but we recognize that all the pieces are connected. And we can't be all things to all people. I mean, no. because then we're, if we do, we're, we're for none. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, I want to take a, a really quick kind of segue here and, and dive just a little deeper into your, into your mind space and tell me just real quickly in the next, next couple of minutes of, of just two or three questions. And then I really want to sp- save some time for our micro course segment. But um, who inspires you? Who's one person that, that inspires you, prim- maybe primarily online or just and why? There's a lot of people that inspire me. <laughs> yeah, you got to pick one. <laughs> um, you know, I, I will pick, just because I'm doing this micro course today, mm-hmm. uh, on, on Profit First, Mike Michalowicz has right. written several business books, and uh, he's, I know him personally, he is just a fantastic person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he has written so many books for different stages of business. Uh, and the, the way that he writes and, and the information that he gives out in his books just tracks so much with who he is as a person Mm. and the integrity that he carries with him as a person. And, um, so, and I use profit first with my clients alongside traditional gap accounting, and it has been so helpful and I have seen it the, the transformations that it has made in my clients. And so, you know, I just kind of have to give credit where it's due there um, that I think that he has made so much positive change for so many small businesses and his, uh, his kind of core, I can't remember what he calls it, but his core, um, core values or core pillars core value, or whatever. Yeah. That's not what he right. calls it, but yeah. is, uh, to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. So mm-hmm. I think that yeah. that is very apropos of uh, for startups, yeah, no <laughs> so, many of which are entering entrepreneurial right. poverty so. and living there constantly. Is there a uh, is there a quote that that inspires you? So my the name of my business this was inspired by this quote. It's Edward Lorenz, and he asked the question: If a butterfly flaps its wings mm. in Texas can it set off a tornado in Brazil? And I probably didn't get all the words right in that. And, you know, what I was talking about earlier in terms of cumulative change was 
the concept that I was trying to kind of connect the dots with when I changed the name of my company to Butterfly Revolution and connecting it to that that quote is a metaphor. And I'm sure that if any physicists are looking, they're rolling their eyes at me because they're like, no, that's chaos theory. But really, I'm using it as, as a metaphor. <laughs> you know what? We, we have poetic license. We can use it however we, we I'm choose. using poetic license. That's right. This is our, this is our podcast interview. We can, we can use it however we want to. So I, I do want to, to uh, like I said, I wanted to save you space just for our, our micro course segment and was transitioning into that right now. And, and you are now the, you put your lecture hat on and your, your instructor hat and, and uh, just teach us from your expertise and, and just share with our, our listeners just kind of this, uh, the whole idea behind whatever you want to share with us today. So you have the floor, you, you can share the desktop. Okay. I have some slides for you. So I'm going to put those up. Okay. So I shared my relationship that my relationship with profit has been complicated in the past. So I just want to ask you, does the word profit make you sing or cringe? Because I suspect that for most people, most people have a complicated relationship with the word profit for one reason or another. So what does the word profit mean to you? And a common scenario around the word profit is you walk into your accountant's office. If you're a startup, you walk into your accountant's office after maybe one year, after maybe three years, and they pull out uh, some financial statements, maybe a little profit and loss, maybe a little balance sheet, sprinkle in a cash, some cash flow for good measure. And you're like, what? <laughs> Are we on the same planet here? <laughs> Why can't you just tell me what's really going on? <laughs> what profit? You're like, oh, you have $10,000. You have $30,000 in profit. You're like, I don't know where that went. <laughs> and they're like, oh, and you owe $30,000 in taxes. And the reason is they were looking at last year. And this is a really common scenario, especially with people that are in early stage growth because maybe you're jumping up into uh, six figures. So your profits are increasing, your income brackets increasing, and uh, they maybe were paying, telling you to pay estimated taxes based on last year, unfortunately. And that's a real bummer. <laughs> so I'm going to define, uh, give you a couple definitions of profit. Okay. Profit equals money in the bank. That's one definition. So if you see it on paper, but you're not sure where it was, um, that's a common scenario. Profit equals money in the bank. And so that is one of the things that uh, we practice in Profit First. We make sure that there's money in the bank so that uh, profit actually is really happening. And profit is appreciation points for what you do in the world and, uh, and for your unique genius. And so there's some people that are actually really uncomfortable with the idea of profit or with the idea of charging people for what they do. And so it's important to remind yourself that this is appreciation points for what you do 
and that charging money for what you do, even if you're trying to make an impact in the world, is important. And profit is also funds to be distributed to the owners and shareholders of the business. That's a little bit more of a technical definition. Mm -hmm. So usually I ask people uh, that are more um, farther along, so maybe not startups, but that have a more established business. How much did you pay your business pay? How much did your business pay you last year? And unfortunately, the answer is often either nothing or it's not enough. And that is the sad truth of a lot of small businesses. So I also like to ask the question, how much do you need your business to pay you? And it's more than you think that it is. Because we have this horrible tendency to underestimate actually what we need. And the reason is that uh, business owners or entrepreneurs can be uh, optimists to a fault. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason. But the other reason is that in our minds, when we think about all the things that we pay for, and so now I'm talking about money on the personal side, we think, okay, I have to pay my mortgage, I have to pay my rent, uh, I have to pay for groceries, and I only need, you know, X thousand number of dollars uh, a month. Because you're thinking, I need to make this business work, and, uh, you know, I only, I, I only need so much. And I... I don't know how many times that I have talked to people that say, oh, well, I, I only need however much from my business. Um, but really, I think you should be asking, how much do you want your business to pay you? Because there are more things that you need to account for. So what if your business paid you enough to cover your current needs, your future needs and your past liabilities because it's not just about covering your mortgage, your groceries and all the things that you're paying every month. There are surprise expenses that come up. There are, if you have debt, maybe you want to pay that down a little bit more rapidly and eventually you want to retire. And we have this nasty habit of discounting the future. Uh, it's a human tendency. Everybody has it where we say that's later. I don't need to think about it. So, uh, I I'm going to talk a little bit about profit first. I didn't write the book when I talk about it. Sometimes people think I wrote it, but it is an increasingly popular, it's, it's becoming increasingly popular. A lot of people know what it is right now. Mike McCallowitz, I mentioned him earlier. He wrote it. That's the book. Um, the premise of the book is we are used to thinking about this formula. Sales minus expenses equals profit. If you have seen a financial statement, if you've seen a profit and loss statement, you've seen this formula. So sales is up at the top, then you would subtract out expenses and profit is what is left over at the bottom. And he reverses this formula. So sales minus profit equals expenses. So what that does is you pull out the profit first to make sure that you have it. Expenses is what is left over. This ensures that you're always pulling profit out of the business. This is not a new concept. We have had this concept for a long time. 
it's the old envelope system. You know, my grandmother used to work for a munitions factory. She went, she had, if she took home, oh goodness, if she took home $100 one week, she would divide it up into envelopes. It might be rents, uh, utilities, emergency funds, groceries, clothing, right? Whatever those five envelopes were. And if she took home $100 one week, it was $20 per envelope if we're dividing evenly, right? If she was sick one week and she only took home $50, it was only $10 per envelope. So maybe that means that one week we're eating steak and one week we're only eating potatoes and cabbage. And the thing is that our current financial systems have evolved to allow us to spend more than that 100%. So if we're putting cash into envelopes, everything equals 100%. But now that we have credit cards and we have loans and we have all these fancy financial tools, we can make that equal more than 100% on a regular basis. And this is what gets us into trouble. So what we do with Profit First is we use that old envelope system, we do it in bank accounts. And it's pretty simple, it really simplifies it. It, it, it leverages our human behavior. And what we do is we take all of our deposits, we deposit it into an income account, and then we allocate it across four other accounts. So there's five accounts total. So we allocate it across, and this is the foundational accounts, this is profit first in its simplest form. We allocate it across profit, owner's pay, tax, and operating expenses according to percentages. And those percentages uh, we decide based on um, a profit assessment of the business. And I'm not going to go into that here so much, but the basic idea is that we just allocate regularly across these accounts. It's kind of a set it and forget it. Because when you do that, you, what you do, you end up with surprise money. You end up with surprise profit. You make sure that your owner's pay is always accounted for. You're always paying yourself. Your tax is always accounted for so that when you do have that $20,000 tax bill at the end of the year, you actually have money for it. And then your expenses or the, that last thing you, that you allocate, you have money for the expenses too. But you're not going around and just spending money on everything that looks nice and that's shiny. You have a certain amount of money in your bank account and you can spend it. If you don't have money in the bank account, you can't spend it. And I have a slide here that just shows, it's an example, and it just shows this is probably not the right uh, revenue for a startup, but uh, it's just for an example, and it's based on a $500,000 company. Um, but these are the target allocation. So this is what we work towards over a six-quarter period. Um, a startup is obviously going to be much lower than this, and we and and I actually set that. I don't set the target allocations for a startup necessarily at these numbers, but it's just to give a sense. And so for the target, what you end up with when you're done implementing profit first. Um, is you allocate profit at 10%. That means for a $500,000 company of real revenue after you're paying for your subcontractors and your materials, if you have those, you end up with $50,000 in profit. You end up with owner's pay of 35% and $175,000 in owner's pay. 
Um, your taxes allocated at 15% at $75,000. That means that you are actually not paying the taxes out of your own pocket. Your business is paying the taxes. So that's still a, a benefit to the owner. So that means that $175,000 in owner's pay that I mentioned, like that's actually your pay and then you don't have to pay taxes out of that. And then you have $200,000 in operating expenses. That's 40%. Now these numbers can really vary from business to business. Right. You know, we make little tweaks, but this is just kind of a textbook based on a half a million dollar company, what this would look like. And there's a few concepts behind Profit First and why this works. This is really, uh, this is not gap accounting. You know, I implemented it alongside gap accounting. We do gap accounting in your, in your QuickBooks. We still track everything according to all the rules and regulations and make sure that all the, all the numbers line up. But what this does is it leverages human behavior. So one of the concepts of human behavior that it leverages is called Parkinson's law. And so Parkinson's law states that, you know, for any given resource that you have, you will use up that, you will use up that resource. So if we think it, it applies to time, it applies to money, and it applies to toothpaste. So if you just think about the toothpaste that you have in your cabinet, you, when you first get that new tube of toothpaste and you like squeeze it onto your toothbrush, when you first get it, it's like the, the amount, you have this huge glob of toothpaste that just, it's like, it's, it's, it's just dripping over the sides of your toothbrush, right? When you get down to the bottom of your, of your toothpaste tube, you are rolling up the bottom of the tube. You're squeezing. It's like sometimes my thumbs ache from, from trying to squeeze that toothpaste out onto, onto the toothbrush, right? And then you have this tiny little smear onto your toothbrush because you're just going to get everything that you possibly can out of that toothpaste, you know, but it's, you know, it happens for everything. If you imagine, if you think about any project that you worked on, you know, you will fill the time that it takes to work on that project. Uh, there's very few people that will finish a project two weeks early. You know, you're always going to take the time that it fills. So the same thing applies for money. You have, $2,000 in your operating expense account, you're going to use that $2,000 in your operating expenses. So this is what, this is how uh, this behavior applies to profit first. And so we're just leveraging that human behavior. We want to set aside the profit. We want to set aside the owner's pay and we want to set aside taxes because those things are important. Right. And then what's left over we have in operating expenses. Another concept is eating your veggies first. So you know, I am sitting at my kitchen counter with my daughter and I do this regularly because she loves vegetables. But if I give her a hamburger next to broccoli, she will not eat the broccoli. She won't eat Brussels sprouts if it's next to a hamburger. But if I, if I put out the Brussels sprouts, if I put out snap peas, like I can't even eat the snap peas if it's in front of her while I'm making the rest of dinner. I have to set aside a bowl for myself because she'll eat the whole bowl of snap peas. So, and this has been shown, I mean, people talk about this in when they talk about nutrition, that eat your vegetables first before you eat the stuff that's not so great for you, the carbs or the huge steak. 
because you want to get those nutrients in first. So in Profit First, we use the same concepts where we are actually allocating the things that are that are good for you. It's actually good to set aside profit. It's good to set aside your owner's pay. And this seems counterintuitive. You know, you think, oh, of course I want to pay myself. But it happens again and again. People will pay their employees before they pay themselves. People will pay for expenses that they think are necessary for their business before they pay themselves. So we say, no, actually, you need to pay yourself. And then we can deal with the rest of your business. Um, so we say, eat your veggies first. <laughs> and the rhythm's really important. So we just... You know, in the book, Mike talks about on the 10th and the 25th of the month, and that works for about 50% of the businesses. But the most important thing is that we're allocating this money regularly. So with some of my clients, we do it weekly. With some of them, we, we do do it on the 10th and the 25th. Uh, with some of them, we do it bi-weekly. But the most important thing is that you're doing it regularly and that it's habitual. Well, with a lot of people that have payroll, I peg it to payroll. Uh, so that it's just part of your routine. And it just disappears into the background. It just becomes part of your reality. So there is this myth out there that, you know, we talk about business, people say, how's your company doing? You say, oh, it's great. And you talk about all the great things that are happening in it and everything's smooth and you're like this cowboy riding off into the sunset and it's so romantic. You know, the life of an entrepreneur is so romantic and you can, you can throw a stone and you can hear somebody talking about how they're gonna start a business. But in reality, you know, on a good day, and for the podcast listeners, I mean, the slide up here, on a good day, you're, it's really like being on a buck and bronco. You know, it is, there's a lot of up and downs and it hurts sometimes. It really hurts. And if we're to be honest, sometimes that horse just gets on top of us and tramples us. And it's important to recognize that. And it's important to realize that it's true in finance. It's true in business. And when we are able to understand that we are not the only person going through this, and when we're able to reach out to the other people in our industry and to reach out to um, our network and understand that uh, it, it, it really helps us to move forward and to grow in our business. So I talked before about change being cumulative and I see that on the scale of movements. I see it, but I also see it in the smaller ways in business that, you know, we can make changes in business. We can make it when we implement profit first. We can make it so when we implement profit first, you know, those small changes, just setting aside tax, setting aside profit, setting aside owner's pay, that accumulates over time. When you uh, understand that, you know, you're not just supposed to be uh, a cowboy riding off into the sunset and that everybody running a small business is actually not killing it, it gives you the courage to kind of reach out and solve problems collaboratively. Um, and that is what enables us to build resilient businesses and move forward and make that cumulative change and make positive impact with our businesses. So where can, where can people find out more? My website is butterflyrevolution.com. Okay. 
Oh, and should I leave that up? That's the best place. No, I, I will oh. put that in the show notes. That's the best place to, to get in touch with you. Yeah. So my website is butterflyrevolution.com. Uh-huh. And the best place for people to, the, the easiest way for people to get in touch with me is email Ingrid at butterflyrevolution.com. I'm on social media as Butterfly Agent. Okay. So all the various social media, Facebook, uh, I have a YouTube channel. Um, those are the main ones, uh, Instagram and Twitter I'm less active on. But really, if people want to reach me directly, email is the best way, Ingrid at ButterflyRevolution.com. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much for taking your, your time today and, and uh, just outlining your business background and, and the, the business journey you've been on and the micro course related to, to Profit First. And we appreciate you taking that time and really playing your part in just helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Ingrid, thanks again. Yeah, thank you.